Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you are the generous sort, you can be like Garrett, Walker, Ben, Janet, Robin, and John, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store, so check it out. Our guest today is Julie Claussen. For most of her career, Julie worked at the Illinois Natural History Survey, University of Illinois, as a fisheries research biologist and academic professional. There, she worked on a variety of projects focusing on the maintenance of healthy populations of native fish and fisheries and the effectiveness of fisheries management regulations. In 2003, Julie helped found the Fisheries Conservation Foundation in order to directly work with constituents and decision makers to develop science-based solutions for fisheries issues and now serves as full-time director of operations for the foundation, managing programs, establishing alliances, and overseeing communication efforts. Through her work with the foundation, its partners, and the Air National Finance Corporation, Julie has worked on several field-based international projects in Canada, Bahamas, Thailand, Nepal, Pakistan, and Bhutan. She's also active in improving science communication among natural resource professionals and currently co-directs two intensive training programs, the Climate Ambassadors and Climate Fellows Program, to improve how we talk about the impacts of climate change on aquatic environments. In addition, she serves on the Advisory Council for the ABT Narrative Training, which teaches the dynamics that make science communication both concise and compelling. Welcome to the podcast, Julie. Thank you. So your, your bio was was long and lays out kind of your career, but how did you first become interested in fish? Um, well, fish actually came l- later. Um, I always, well, I, my story I always tell is that I had to pick a career that didn't um, work with people. <laughs> I knew I didn't want to work with people, <laughs> which is kind of ironic because fisheries ends up working with people but mm-hmm. back then I just I I knew that you know if I had to you know be a nurse or you know work in some um, industry or discipline that I interacted with people every day that that was not going to be my thing that I wanted to be outdoors I grew up on a farm spent lots and lots and lots of time outdoors but I came from a small town and really didn't know my options uh, in fact, my guidance counselor, um, you had to meet with your guidance counselor at your senior year. And he said, Julie, I just don't think you're college material. So I wasn't really even encouraged that heavily to go into the sciences. Um, and the only th- only science I knew about was geology. So I, I uh, started out in geology and then um, met with the counselor there and said, you know, I think you actually belong in biology. So transferred over there and um, had a really great natural history uh, education for my undergrad, but not in fish, you know, not focused in fish at all. And then um, I went to Iowa Lakeside Lab to do a final senior class. And a guy walked by with a T-shirt that said Illinois Natural History Survey. And I said, hey, that sounds like a cool place. What's that? And he said, oh, it's this place in Illinois and uh, told me all about it and said they do internships. So you should, you know, think about applying. So I applied for an internship, which uh, they had an in-stream flow um, position available. 
And that was my whole introduction into aquatic sciences was, uh, was just that path. I would say I started out in fisheries from a t-shirt. The position was in stream flow. Was it uh, kind of all stream stuff, water quality and insects and fish, or was it uh, more one or the other? Yeah, it was, um, it was heavily focused on fish. We did, uh, my first job was measuring um, uh, uh, algae growth, um, but it had all different components for in-stream flow, but we were also doing fish tracking um, as part of that, of that study. And so worked with a bunch of fisheries guys, really, really liked it. Um, and then, you know, the, I worked at that position for a year and a half and really, you know, just got to appreciate um you know, I appreciate fish and really what, um, you know, their place in the food chain and, um, uh, you know, just got more and more interested in fish life. And then, um, and then I transferred over to the fish genetics lab, um, for, um, and then worked on, on more, um, fisheries issues over there. So once I, once I started with fish, I, I didn't leave. <laughs> we have had guests on in the past that have worked for the Illinois Nat- Natural History Survey, but I think it's been a while and probably not recent enough to, that people would be familiar. So I guess, would you mind explaining kind of what the Natural History Survey is and how it operates in Illinois? Sure. Um, so it's they're a pretty unique um, institution, and we aren't the only one. There are other uh, natural history surveys. There is like, um, some lasted, some didn't. Um, a lot of the land-grant universities um, had natural history surveys planned. Um, I think Oklahoma has a natural history survey, but the, the biggest one and the one that has really um, standed the measure of time was the, the Illinois Natural History Survey. So it predates the university and really predates the, uh, the Department of, of um, uh, Natural Resources. And so it, it was a collection of uh, biologists that really surveyed the natural history. So there was, you know, plant biologists, there were, you know, fish people, there were insect people. And, um, and th- their job was just to survey the, uh, uh, you know, the biodiversity. But then it grew more into institution, it got into research. And um, at first we were part of the Department of Natural Resources and we, but we were located, the home office was in Champaign, Illinois with the University of Illinois. So there's always close ties with the university. And then I don't know what year it was, maybe 15, 20 years ago, it became part, a research institute of the university. So it was a re- it's it's a really unique uh, institution where we work really closely with natural resource management um, for fisheries. We work very closely with the fisheries department, and um, you know tackle uh, specific management questions that they are interested in, but also continue to do um, just some of the basic biological surveys that need to be done. If I was following your your timeline correctly, you uh, finished your undergrad. And then what went to work for the Natural History Survey right away? Were there any steps along the way or did you land with the Natural History Survey and stay there for quite a while? I did. I did a stint of several little internships, um, mainly in Iowa. Um, there were some camps. I, I worked in, at a, a education. Um, most of them were education oriented. Um, Iowa, a lot of the counties have um naturalist centers so I did that and just jumped around to see what what fit 
And then, um, yeah, and then just ended up at the Natural History Survey, not expecting to stay. I'm from Iowa. I was not expecting to stay in the Midwest, but there you go. 30 plus years later, I never got out of the Midwest. <laughs> yeah, so you, uh, you eventually landed back with the Illinois Natural History Survey and stayed there for quite a while, um, working on quite a long list of fun projects. Do you have one in mind that was your favorite to work on during your time there? Um, oh, that's a good question. Um, what was my favorite project? Um, so um, the I, I did my master's on bluegill and um, and bluegill dynamics, reproductive dynamics. And we had a project where we looked at stunting in bluegill across uh, Midwestern lakes. And that's probably my favorite because it was, it, it, it married in the reproductive ecology and the um, management issues and um, overfishing issues and um, food web issues. So it was, you know, it, it married all these, all these um, different uh, disciplines and, and questions that I thought was really great. So that's a topic that we've recently started to revisit here in Kansas is uh, how to how to grow our bluegill bigger and get over some of this stunting we have going on. So I guess it's right. a, it, a, a yeah. cyclical topic. Yes, <laughs> I think it's a cyclical problem, um, you know, but because they're so plastic in their growth and because they have these alternative reproductive tactics that, um, you know, it's just a really interesting uh, issue to tackle. If you fish out all the big reproductively active bluegill, then the younger ones will um, mature up and stop growing. And once that happens, then how can you, you know, how can you reverse that issue? It's pretty challenging. Well, after quite a while with the Illinois Natural History Survey, uh, we mentioned in their bio that you founded the, or co-founded the Fisheries Conservation Foundation nearly 20 years ago in 2003. I guess what led to that decision to found uh, that foundation and I guess was that a step away from the natural history survey or something that you did kind of on the side? Yeah, no, it was, I would say it was um, one, it was a group of, of uh, pretty dedicated biologists and, and conservationists. Um, For me personally, you know, I'd done research for a long time and you work on these projects and you, you know, you, you spend just so much time gathering the right data and looking at a question um, from a very hypothesis driven scientific method. And you you put your all into it and you publish a report and you publish your paper and then you move on. But it's just so hard to get that those results into really tangible management actions. And that was frustrating. It was frustrating over a career. Um, and I wouldn't say that's always. I mean, sometimes those those things get get put into um, management um, management regulations, but um, I was feeling very frustrated that you spend, you know, you pour your heart out, you spend so much time, you, you know, volunteer all these hour, extra hours to make sure the work gets done and gets done well. And it kind of sits there on a shelf. So um, I felt a need to do something a little different. So personally, that was my, my interest in the, in um, 
doing something more. Um, the, our other group of, of fisheries um, people, which was mainly grew out of the American Fisheries Society, um, were also frustrated scientists that felt that um, we were not communicating with our constituents, uh, fisheries constituents uh, enough, and that there was a lot of opportunity to spread fisheries science to um, broader audiences. And then we had some business people and slash anglers that also really felt this need from their side, that um, there's this whole world of fishery science and anglers complain about, um, about the state of the fish, or if you're a conservationist, you may complain about the state of uh, um, an ecosystem that you love uh, without ever really understanding or tapping into the fish science or, or um, aquatic sciences. So that was the impetus for forming the Fisheries Conservation Foundation was to see if uh, we could um, we could form some partnerships and really tackle that um, that avenue. We also mentioned in the bio that you've done work uh, in a whole bunch of countries outside of the United States, Canada, Bahamas, Thailand, Nepal, Pakistan, and Bhutan. When the foundation first started, uh, did you jump right into the interna international work or did you start more domestic and then gradually expand out to uh, some foreign locations? It really started, I would say, internationally. Um, the, the hard part about working in the U.S. And, and Canada, I guess, is, you know, they're big countries with complicated governance and lots and lots of competition from other NGOs. Um, when that's not a bad thing, it's just, you know, we're, we're a very little fish in a big pond. And so where can you make a difference? And um, our organization does not take fees. We do not pay salaries. It is all, um, it's all volunteer. So, um, and we made a conscious decision to do that, that every dollar that we raised would go back into the resource. We were not interested in you know, having a paid board or paid executive director or any of that, that just is a whole different level that, um, that we didn't want to do. We didn't want to fundraise for that. We wanted to fundraise for the resource. Um, and so we were already doing some research in the Bahamas. And so that easily slid into, um, into a project for us. And the other thing is, is when you work in a small country, you can make things happen a lot quicker, right? I mean, at the time we started working in the Bahamas, the prime minister's number was listed in the phone book. I mean, it's just, you have a lot more, you'll have a lot more access to people that you want to talk to. Um, so that was great. And we were doing really great work that, you know, I, just questions that had not been answered. Um, uh, really basic questions that had not been answered. Um, one of the first things we did is um, we focused on flats fishing, mainly on bone fishing, but also um, any flat species, the permit, tarpon. And we, were, we knew that the Bahamas did not understand the worth of that fisheries to the country. So we partnered at, um, with a couple other organizations and did an economic evaluation study and showed that per year at that time, the, the flats fishing was worth 141 million to their economy every year. Once we did that, they started to pay a lot more attention to, to, uh, to what we said. They really, really at that time, didn't have any idea that it was worth that much. Um, you know, when you add in, you know, all the restaurants and all the hotels and the guides and the lodges and um, equipment. 
um, it, it, it was worth a lot. So um, that was our really first big successful um, jump into um, international. And then um, through some contacts um, and, uh, and other partnerships, then we, we jumped into Asia. I guess how many total projects have, has the foundation completed in the nearly 20 year span? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> Too many well, to remember. What's what's hard is that um, is that a lot of our projects are really long term. So we've been working in the Bahamas for twenty years. Um, uh, but I would say, um, you know, we probably have like twenty five, and we probably have I don't know. Um, Wow, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think how many we don't have going anymore. So we probably have about 12 that we have finished. And then we have, um, you know, let's say 12 more. But, you know, like the Bahamas would have four or five different projects in it. In mm. Bhutan, we have four or five different projects going. So. Throughout some of your answers, you've kind of highlighted some of the advantages or disadvantages of uh, working domestically or internationally. Uh, I guess, is there, was there much of a learning curve as far as it came to the fish sampling and then also some of the maybe red tape you would have to go through in other countries? Well, certainly the fish sampling um, is, uh, and that's why we, you know, partnerships are just so important is that you pull in local people. I mean, the Bahamas, we worked really closely with local guides because they're out there every day. And um, it's pretty astonishing how often they don't get asked their opinion when they are out there every day, you know, seeing with their own eyes what's going on, what's, you know, what's happening. And so um, that's something that we do pretty quickly with any project is, is get some local knowledge, um, uh, you know, just on, you know, just on the uh, logistics and those sort of things. Um, but more challenging is just the cultural differences. I mean, you know, even just in the United States, you can go from Oregon to Mississippi and there's a lot of cultural differences that you have to mm -hmm. you know, think about for fisheries. And then that just gets amplified um, when you're working in a different country. And certainly in Asia, um, you know, for, you know, for working in Bhutan, um, <laughs> you know, just so many cultural uh, differences that you just don't think about. So one of my favorite, our favorite stories is where we, you know, it's just, it, it's a hard place to work logistically to get there and to sample fish. And we were using angling to sample our golden this year, which is what we were working on. And we were tagging them. So we're, we're angling them. We're sticking a radio transmitter in. So we're doing surgery. We've got, you know, our mobile lab all set up for, for surgery. And um, the fish are pretty spooky. They're really hard to catch, right? So we're like, you, you know, just like creeping up to the shoreline, casting, not making any noise. We get all set up for the afternoon. And this, we hear this motorboat coming up the river and we're like, what is that? Who is coming? And it was, they came, they landed right on our beach and they had brought tea. They brought afternoon tea for us oh. <laughs> and you know we could be mad at them but they're like well no we thought you might need some refreshments and we're happy to bring you tea and we're like oh my gosh please don't bring us tea 
<laughs> but of course we didn't say that or thank mm-hmm. you and you start you know but um you know, because they ju- that is their generosity. They want to make sure that you're happy and they don't do much fisheries research there. So that, you know, this 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 concept of staying away was not was not, you know, part of them. So um they had to do a little a little training on both sides. Um yeah. And then um uh for Bhutan, it's a Buddhist country. And so um there are days, there are auspicious days. So every full moon is an auspicious day. There's and there's I don't know, there's a lot of auspicious days. Let's say there's like 180 in a year. I don't know if that's the number, but there's a lot. And you can't do certain things on auspicious days. And so um we have to be very respectful of that. Um in the Buddhist calendar, there is the month of no killing. So you're not allowed to kill any beings during that month. And so when you're there doing fisheries research, that can be challenging, although we have really adjusted all of our studies there. So we don't kill fish because that would be totally against their their beliefs there. So um, yeah, so challenging, interesting, but also really eye-opening and a wonderful way to look at a different perspective, um, you know, and which is why I just encourage anybody if they get the chance to um, work internationally in any aspect, it just is, um, it just is really eye-opening and educational. Have any of the the lessons you've learned doing the international work uh, shined a new light on maybe some uh, issues in the United States that might have puzzled you before you started the international process or international projects? I think that the, most challenging perspective that I have is I'm pretty fierce on protecting intact ecosystems. I feel that where we are in this world right now, that the healthy ecosystems that are intact that we have not um, altered too much (laughs) need to be protected. And um, free flowing rivers is, is a huge one, right? Freshwater, Mm -hmm. you know, freshwater systems that are, that are healthy um but when you go over to an area that is very poor and people are worried about how they are going to um eat that day it's pretty hard to say well all right so you can't you know you can't build aquaculture ponds here or you can't put a hydropower dam here and and uh have more wealth because you have one of the few free flowing rivers in, in this area. You know, it's that, it's that balance. And it's a really hard question. It's a really hard question. I think for everybody in society is how do we, um, how do we protect these, these ecosystems that are left um, and still provide for the local communities that, you know, maybe, maybe living there. You know, I think it's made me look at things in a more balanced view. I think before I started working internationally, especially on hydropower, I would say no hydropower. Um, but now I, um, you know, I can see where hydropower can be done um, right, or at least in very site-specific areas where it has less damage to biodiversity, Um or that there may be some trade-offs where you leave free-flowing rivers untouched but then you um, 
the impact on on already impacted rivers maybe uh, maybe more I, you know i i just have i just think about um that balance very very differently another recurring theme throughout your your career or uh, for those familiar with your career is your your passion for science communication and so i guess why is effective science communication so important to you and to science as a whole because we're in trouble nick <laughs> <laughs> I um I just think our problems are are really complicated and in our face, right? And as biologists, we see that um on a daily basis no matter what we do. Um we see the changes, we see the impacts. And it's getting harder and harder to um correct those impacts and so I think of us as on the front lines, right? And when you're soldiers on the front lines, you need to tell the story of what it's like on the front lines. And, um, you know, we have a lot to share and a lot to give, but we aren't, well, we aren't trained to tell those stories. And I think just the nature of being a biologist scientist, uh, many of us just, we would rather be out on the lake alone by ourselves, either fishing or collecting our data. You know, we just, are, we're all about being out in the field or, or you know, analyzing our data. We're not so much about being in the front of the room. And so it doesn't fall as naturally to, to many of us. And um, so that training is really important. Um, but I, I, it, to me, it's more than important. It's, um, you know, it's, it's a dire need. If, if we aren't going to tell a story of what's happening to um, our biological world, then who's going to tell it? And, um, you know, as, as those on the front line, it's just imperative. Um, I really believe we all, we all now have a, a uh, duty <laughs> to, to go out and tell, tell these stories. Have you always had this interest in science communication or was it something that was sparked early in your career? Maybe you mentioned you did a bunch of educational stuff after your undergrad. Was that where the passion grew or was that kind of something you had all along? Yeah, I sort of full circle. I started my undergrad in um, more in an educational naturalist training program. Um, and so it gave me a really good natural history background, um, but it was um, it, it was really more about um, communicating that natural history to, to people and to schools. Um, but then I, then I had some opportunities to do research. And then when I did my internship at the natural history survey, I'm like, Oh, wait, I really like this research stuff. This is awesome. Um, so, uh, you know, but that was a long time ago. So I would say that communication skill training and tactics has just evolved like leaps and bounds since I started. So, you know, it was certainly an interest. Um, but I would say um, until I really, um, I well, one, I didn't really have much confidence as a speaker early on in my career either. Um, and so that just through time and experience and giving talks and, um, you know, being challenged as I got more comfortable with myself as a communicator, then um, I started to look more at um, how. So I would say sort of mid-career is when I really jumped in and said, oh, okay, now I'm feeling more confident. What, what more can I do? And then as time went on, I realized, wait, we all, we all need skills 
um, and we and we all need to be talking to our constituents better, which is then why you know why um, I um, worked with it on forming the Fisheries Conservation Foundation. You mentioned in your answer that uh, earlier in your career that there wasn't much of a training focus on science communication. I guess uh, when in your career did you notice that there started to be more of a focus on science communication or that communication with the public was given kind of more of a priority or not priority, but placed more importance on communication? Yeah, well, so when I was in the university, it was all that there was a big um, at least in my university, University of Northern Iowa, the big push was for environmental education, um, which is still a thing. Um, but environmental education is in the schools. You use you use the environment throughout um, all the disciplines. So when you're working on math problems, you're working on problems that are, you know, based on environment. When you're, you know, English scales, you you use examples from you know the natural environment so it's it's throughout your education you're using these environmental um, examples to make people more aware of um, the natural environment that's probably a really old school bad um, introduction so I apologize to environmental educationists but it's been a while so anyway um, that was really that focus Um, but then as I you know, when I go to a conference, I, I remember in Midwest Fish and Wildlife Conference, I think it was in Grand Rapids, um, I don't know, a long time ago, um, Randy Olson gave a workshop there, which makes me laugh because that's, that's the first time I was aware of, of Randy and I did a, a day-long workshop with him and that was just mind-blowing. It's like, oh, wait, there's actually you know, there's actually this whole discipline, this whole movement. And then I started to really pay attention and read science communication papers, you know, discover there's a science communication journal, you know, all those things. Um, got into social media. Um, and so, you know, that that all started. And then years later, I, I joined up with Randy and, and now I'm, you know, work with him. That segues perfectly into my next question is, or question topic, I guess. You mentioned you serve on the advisory council for the ABT narrative training. I know what the ABT is because I have one of the climate fellows that we'll discuss a little bit later, but uh, I guess would you mind filling all the other listeners in on on what ABT stands for? Sure, sure. So the ABT is a narrative template um, and it stands for and, but, therefore. So the it's a narrative structure it's it it gives you um it it gives you a a template to lay out uh the structure for a story so many scientists talk in non-narrative manner we do and 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 this and that and here's a fact on this and i want you to know this and i want you to see this graph and you have to pay attention to this and this and that is not a story. That is a bunch of facts. And typically, scientists say, if I give you all this information, then you can take it as a listener, and you can, you know, you can absorb that, and then you'll know it, and life, you know, you'll you'll be changed. Um, but as we know, that doesn't happen <laughs> because it's not it's it's too much. Um, people don't know where to focus with all those facts, and uh, it's not memorable. Um, the way that our brains are structured is they are structured for a problem-solution dynamic, and that's where the but comes in. 
So the and is the setup. You know, we all like fish and we all love water and we all want to enjoy the outdoors, but there's this problem with that. And the but is where that that issue um, is brought in. And that's that structure. Um, in order for it to be a good story, then you have um, you have triggered the brain of your listener with the problem. You've made people sit up, um, but now you need to satisfy them. And the satisfying is in with the solution. And that's the therefore. The therefore is the solution. So if you look at the all the stories in the world, not all the stories, many stories of the world, many successful stories um, or scripts, they really follow this narrative structure. Um, and this is, you know, as you know from Randy, there was a girl in Kansas, but she was carried away by a, um, by a tornado. Um, and had to, you know, go through a bunch of trials um, um, to find her way way home. Um, you know, therefore, she had to uh, find a wizard that would um, bring her back to, you know, to her her homeland. Um, you know, you can you can really break down many many stories to to those basics. So um, the and but therefore is not just a template; is really how. Um, our brains are wired for story, and it's that problem-solution dynamic that really um, that uh, it it is really built on for good storytelling. And I mentioned that I learned about the ABT framework while I was in the Climate Fellows Program, and that's a program, uh, communications training program that you're involved with uh, through AFS. So I guess would you mind uh, kind of laying out? what brought about the Climate Ambassadors Program and the Climate Fellows Program? Yeah, so um, I'm going to give um, a lot of credit to Scott Boner here. He was president of American Fishery Society um, uh, a couple of years ago. And he was passionate about, still is passionate about climate change and really challenged uh, fisheries biologists to go speak about climate change. And, you know, put this challenge out to each member to say, I challenge you to go talk to a non-scientific group about climate change. And a couple people did. And one of them, um, Jeff Kapaska from Iowa said, hey, I, I tried this and I wasn't very successful. I actually don't really know what you want done here. Like, I don't know what is effective messaging. I don't know. I'm paraphrasing. I'm sorry, Jeff, if you're listening. Um, uh, you know, I I need some more feedback. I need I need some more information. So that brought around a discussion of well, maybe what we need to do instead of challenging people to just go out and talk about it is to tell them how to talk about it. And um, then we got a grant to do that, and then we. Um, through Drew Winters, um, she works for AFS, and then Carolyn Hall and Katie O'Reilly and I, you know, really sat down and said, to be an effective communicator, what do we really need to focus on? Like, what are the important components? You know, you, um, I, I, we were all knew that narrative structure was part of that, right? You can't go out and tell scientists to say, go out, tell stories, tell stories, be a good storyteller and not give them any framework on what makes the good story. Um, we knew delivery, right? Emotional connection is really, really important. So that was um, a big thing. Visuals, 
um, how we show our science, whether that's graphs, um, you know, cultural connections, um, the, the um, you know, diversity, equity um, is an important part. So anyway, we just sat down and, and we said, wow, we could really make a pretty dynamic program here. The other thing, after I had worked with Randy for a while, um, that the two things, repetition is important, right? Practice, meeting regularly, not just taking a workshop and walking away. And, and we knew that that was important. And then um, really forming community of practice, having opportunities for, for people to share their new skills and have a safe place to, to share their skills um, was, is important. Um, so we put together this two-year program um, for the climate ambassadors. We completed cohort one. Cohort two will start in January 2023, and the applications are um, are open right now. So we are taking applications for the ambassador program. So anybody that's interested, um, contact me or um, or Drew Winters at AFS. Um, I think you can go to the AFS website and probably find the link as well. But we had a huge mix of ambassadors um, in our program, but what we did for state fisheries biologists, um, there was a few of those. We had a few state fisheries biologists that contacted us and said, we'd love to do this, but um, climate change is a difficult topic in our state. So I'm not sure if we can commit to this big of a program. And then we also learned a lot about the key components that, you know, that the, our cohort one with ambassadors is a bit of a, a pilot study. So we wrote a grant that would focus specifically on state fish biologists um, to really address that, that, that group. And that group has um, specific needs. Um, you have um, a lot of similar, um, I don't want to say issues, but similar experiences. So then we put, um, put together the fellows program, made that a year long program. Um, and, uh, you know, it, so, so it was great because the, the fellows really benefited what we had learned from the ambassadors and, um, uh, yeah. And I, I, I hope, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely learned a lot. It super, so. Yeah. It was super successful. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd, I'd encourage anybody that's interested in in science communication to to apply for the ambassadors program, or uh, I guess if you're a state employee and feel like waiting for the next round of fellows program to to do that well, but apply for for these programs. And it has the the climate title in front of it, but it's it's really about learning how to communicate your science uh, with a climate tag on the front of it. So. Uh, you can use this on anything. It's not just climate communication that you're that you're learning about. So well, and really, I mean, Randy says this, and I agree. That you know, we say science communication, but it's just communication. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can use an ABT to get out of bed, right? Or you can use, um, you know, everything that we lot, you know, we, we used an emotional connection, um, you know, with Brian Flamo. I mean, these are skills that you know you can use throughout your life. It's not just, um, it's not just. It's certainly it's important for science communication, but it really is all just communication. And Randy's ABT. Uh, narrative gym book has been adapted to business people and um, uh, forgot the other groups that's been adapted to but he's adapted his book to other groups so it's not just a science communication course like like you said it's 
a communication right. course. Right. He has one for business. He has one for politics. And he's got a new one coming out. It should be out um, in the by end of October um, that really focuses on um, science and grad, graduate student and postdocs. Um, but I think it will have a lot in there for, you know, for everybody, proposals, um, papers, that sort of thing. We've picked up on a few recurring themes throughout this, um, uh, communication being one of them, but another one was your involvement with the American Fisheries Society. Um, I guess, when did you first become involved with AFS and I guess, why is your involvement uh, or participation important to you? I love AFS. <laughs> I will say, and this is not an exaggeration, it is not, uh, I mean, I, I would not be the scientists I am, where I am, the opportunities, the people I've met without American Fisheries Society. Um, I should say I am married to my research partner, David Phillip, and, you know, that has provided a, many great experiences. Um, and, you know, Dave and I work together side by side um, through our research. But Dave was a member when I met, right? So when we first met, so he's like, oh, you got to be a member of the American Fisheries Society. So I'm like, all right. Great. Um, had no idea what it was. It wasn't something that was um, in my university and undergrad, so I, I didn't know about it. Went to my first state meeting, thought, oh, this is pretty cool. And um, and then was able to go to uh, um, my first national meeting. And what, you know, what really hit me was here I was 25 years old, just really starting out. And I could meet all these great scientists and all these great people. And I um, hadn't really thought too much about graduate school, met these graduate students. I mean, just the, you know, just opening the, my eyes to all the opportunities that were out there. And I tell young people this, the great thing about being in a professional society and certainly American fishery society is at any level you can participate, right? So as an undergrad, if you want to join a committee and on that committee are emeritus professors, your voice is not less than, than theirs. You get to offer your perspective. Um, you don't have to wait till you have a job to participate. You can, and believe me, people want people on committees. So, you know, if you want to, if you want to give your time to a committee, you are welcomed. And, um, and not only that, you just get to meet great people and work with them. And it constantly opens up your eyes and perspectives. And, um, you know, so that encouragement, and when you get more involved, you know, you just get more um, invested in um in the society but also you know also in the um disciplines you know i was involved in the genetic section really heavily involved with the international fisheries section um you know so just having those sections and disciplines um equal opportunities section um so i i just think it's a a path that it, you're missing out on if you aren't a part and if you can't go to the national meetings you know most people you know it's not there's you know, there's chapter meetings, there's division meetings. You don't, you don't have to have always have to go to a national meeting. You can, you, know, you can participate at many different levels. Some of the most fun meetings, I mean, all the meetings are fun, but some of the most fun ones are those smaller uh, <laughs> section ones. Uh, like I remember going to the Rivers and Streams Technical Committee meeting that's held in uh, one of the quad cities of Iowa and Illinois. 
uh, just in some sportsman's lodge and everybody stays at the same same hotel and you bust your bust yourself to the to the lodge and then they have a fish fry and they have a keg of beer after the meeting and uh, it's just a fun fun meeting with a group of guys that all work on the upper Mississippi River together mostly and uh, so those smaller meetings are fun because uh, I guess you feel more part of the group than when you're in the giant national meeting where there's uh, an army of people that you you've never seen (laughs) maybe unless you go to multiple meetings then you start to recognize more people right right yeah I mean it always makes me laugh that you know you get you get a bunch of us together and you know we'll we just people just love to talk about their work and about their problems and their issues fish Mm -hmm. issues you know not their you know if we don't sit here and talk about baseball games and and you know our personal life we sit there and really just talk about our work and it just always amplifies to me how passionate this people are in this discipline it's really wonderful so in 2018, you were awarded the Emmeline Moore Prize by the American Fisheries Society for your commitment to diversity initiatives. Uh, Emmeline Moore was the first woman president of the American Fisheries Society, as well as the first woman biologist in New York and eventually the first woman fish chief in New York. Uh, so the first woman in many areas of, of the fishery science and kind of laid a path for the women that followed her. I guess what what changes have you observed during your career regarding uh, women in fisheries? So I can't tell you the number of times early in my career where I was the only woman in the room. Um, and you know, whether that was a, usually our state chapter meetings weren't that, but, but often like if there's breakout rooms or, you know, I, I would be the only woman. Um, fortunately, my personality is one that I just, you know, it, 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 it was it wasn't intimidating for me but sometimes I would look look around and go really really like just kind of shocked right um so that has changed a lot just the the sex ratio I think is is continued to grow um and just what impresses me is just people are willing to be outspoken um Speaking of cultural values, I, I grew up in Iowa, you know, and, and it was, you know, you grew up in a farm and sort of the culture there is don't, don't make waves, try to make people happy, don't, you know, don't be, um, avoid conflict. And so there were many situations early in my career where something inappropriate would be said or done, and I just brush it off or laugh it off or, you know, whatever. And, um, you know, now I see these strong women that just say, no, stop it, or, or really call it out. And, and that is something that I think is a a wonderful progression, um, that people recognize, you know, that, um, that, um, bias more, more easily, um, instead of just going, ah, you know, it's just part of the, part of the job. Yeah, so you know, just women that are are strong and more aware and and um, willing to really tackle some of these issues head on, um, and then also on the other side, just everybody is more aware, right? So many, um, you know, many there's just good strong men out there that that also um, are aware and jump on it and tackle problems where they see it or or make sure those problems you know aren't aware uh, ahead of time. Um, I mean, I started my career where I worked with a lot of pretty 
older, staid fisheries guys that, you know, I, they, they weren't really interested in growing in their mm-hmm. diversity and equity or bias. Um, <laughs> it was more like laughing if you couldn't pick up your end of the, you know, heavy generator or, you know, whatever it was. So, um, yeah, so I, 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 I've seen a lot of growth. Um, and I think just, I try to celebrate that. You know, sometimes um, I had this discussion in Spokane um, about that balance of of needing to do more, right? Um, but balanced with recognizing that we're, you know, we've come a long way. When we, when we, in 1991, when we formed the Equal Opportunity Section, there was like five women that were dedicated to doing this and the pushback we got from that was pretty and the comments we got back from that were pretty pretty severe and pretty challenging and we just said we're going to do it so we did it um but you know there was even leadership that was just like "Mm, i don't know if we need to start going down that path and we said no we're going to do it so um and that you know that never would happen now at least in my time during the career definitely seems like there's there's more and more women uh, being involved in fisheries and having roles in fisheries. And I know each step along my early career, I've, I've uh, had a, a female supervisor, a female coworker that uh, has been a, a strong role model or somebody that I looked up to in the field or uh, somebody that I respected in the workspace. So uh, I know it's, uh, it, at least in my short tenure, in going to the national means, you even see more and more females attain the, the conference there and a more diverse crowd um, at the national means in the Midwest meetings and other division meetings. So I guess there's, there's hope for the future for it being a more diverse career field. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, when, when Dave and I had kids, we would, we, we'd bring them to the meetings and they'd be running around, <laughs> but, um, but we, you know, I was, there weren't very many of us. And now there's many, many um, more, you know, couples or women that are, you know, saying, if I come to this meeting, I, I need childcare, I have to bring, you know, my child. And it's just, um, um, you know, that that's more accepted. Just, um, you know, we make lifestyle choices, but that doesn't mean we, they, it has to hinder our careers. And I, I, I'm, there's just a lot more tolerance for that. Um, I mean, people, uh, so at the Baltimore meeting, when they had the first um, LGBTQ um, reception, it blew my mind. And, and people were kind of laughing at me. I'm like, no, you do not understand. When I joined the American Fisheries Society in 1985, the thought that this could happen was just, you know, you might as well said, we're going to have a meeting on the moon. I mean, it just... I mean, I, I, I probably had tears in my eyes. It was just such a momentous thing. Um, and that it happened naturally. It wasn't that, you know, it was, wasn't, it was just a, it was just another reception that you could go to and support. And um, it was lovely. And, um, but I, I just, uh, um, I told Cassidy, I'm just like, I hope you recognize how huge this is for, you know, for the society that um, 
that with this ease and this acceptance that, that this gets to happen. It's just fabulous. Well, Julie, uh, this has been a wonderful chat that we've had so far, but uh, I think it's time to start wrapping things up. And so the tough part of the interview is over as we're and now we roll into what we call our final five questions. And this is a group of five questions that we ask each of the guests that come on the show. And we start real simple with what is your favorite fish? Um, the goonch. <laughs> I I always struggle because I love smallmouth bass. If you ever get to snorkel on um on spawning um black bass, that nothing can beat a smallmouth. But uh working in Asia, I've been um I've been introduced to this catfish called the goonch, which I just I love it. It's a fabulous fish. So the goonch. I've kind of asked you some variant of this question uh, earlier in the interview, but what is your favorite memory from your career so far? Um, I will say <laughs> getting the Emily Moore prize was a, was a big moment. That was a, a very, very special uh, award for me. And um, so I'll put that out there. To many, it, it would seem like you, you already have it, but what is your dream job or dream location to work in? <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to beat my gig. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, gosh, um, my dream job and dream location. Wow. Well, right now I'm in Canada in my cabin and I've done we've done research on this uh, lake in Ontario for the last 35 years. So I am at my very happiest place right now at this moment. So I, um, I can't beat it. All right. If money was not an issue, what is one project that you would like to work on? I would um, go to Nepal and do a radio telemetry study on the Golden Mystere in the Karnali River before it is dammed, which it probably will be. Um, but it's one of the last free flowing rivers. They know nothing about the migratory fish in that river. And um, I think if they did know more, um, there'd be a lot more to fight about. Um, or fight development for um so i'll i'll choose that one and finally if there is one point or one principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head what would it be it's what miss frizzle says <laughs> um if anybody ever has um, read the magic school bus to their children they know about miss frizzle and her motto is take chances make mistakes get messy well julie thank you for coming on the podcast today it was a pleasure catching up with you and, and hearing your story. If people want to find out more information and get a hold of you, what would be the best way to do that? Uh, they can go to, uh, well, they can email me. <laughs> um, my email, uh, I'll give you my, my fish conserve one is um, jclausen at fishconserve.org. And if people are interested in the Climate Ambassadors Program or Climate Fellows Program, where would they go to find more information about that? So then go to the American Fisheries website, fisheries.org, um, and you can email Drew Winters through that. I think there might even be a link on the website. There is also a climate website that AFS, um, that AFS has that has the application on it. And I am looking for that right now. Um, and that website is um, climate.fisheries.org. And there is a climate ambassador program um, link on that. And then that'll take you to, to the application link. It's just a form online. So it's pretty easy to apply. 
And if there is anybody interested in applying for that, the application date is October 1st of 2022. So uh, by the time this episode comes out, you'll have a couple weeks to get your application in. So definitely check that out if you're interested. If you'd like to get a hold of me or anybody else on the podcast, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. Don't forget you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts and hoodies available on Teespring. I am Nick Kramer, and thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember, take chances, make mistakes, and get messy.